It's Wednesday, August 29th, 2018. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Yinchuan, China, in the Wei Autonomous Region of Ningxia. Well, recently, Dr. Rick was able to have a conversation with Micah Freeze. Micah is the pastor of Brainerd Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Prior to serving at Brainerd, he served as the vice president of Lifeway Research in Nashville, Tennessee, and is a frequent speaker in churches and conferences. He has served as a senior pastor in Missouri and an international church planner in Burkina Faso, West Africa. He holds a Master's of Divinity from Midwestern Seminary and a Bachelor of Arts in Theology from the Baptist College of Florida. While in college, Micah met Tracy, and they married in May of 2000. Micah and Tracy are parents to two daughters, Sarah Grace and Kessid Noel, and a son, Haddon. Well, yesterday, we featured part one of this conversation with Dr. Rick and Micah Freeze, and today, we are excited to present part two. You know, you and I have talked offline a little bit just about the about the journey as an adoptive family, and and realizing that um, that it's that it's beautiful and it's good, um, but it's also hard, <laughs> and and that um, you know that that part of what we acknowledge is that um, all all of us and all of our families experience brokenness um, on many different levels, but that that there is there is ample evidence of that in you know in an adoptive family and so just you know just curious of of thoughts encouragement that you might have to adoptive families out of what you know you and tracy are continuing to learn in in the midst of of walking that road yeah so i think um adoptive families i think adoptive families are better positioned to be honest before the lord and experience grace maybe than non-adoptive families in this sense everybody's broken and every family is broken adoptive families it's just harder to hide the brokenness Mm. right our dysfunction is more visible and evident and if you know christ then dysfunction sends you running for grace it sends you running to the cross Mm. we have to cling to jesus because we don't have anything else to cling to now the truth is non-adoptive families are broken and dysfunctional too they're just not always as aware of their dysfunction or it's easier to hide their dysfunction which keeps them from running to jesus You've asked me this, and I've had other people ask me this as well. How are you guys doing? Right? That's the question people ask us. <laughs> I told you, I said, we grade on a curve at our house. Right? Right. Like, if you compare us to a typical American family, man, we're a mess. Like, compare us to adoptive families, we're, we're doing okay. You know, we're doing yeah. well. I mean, we see a therapist, like, every, like every, just about every other adoptive family either does or should. Right. Right. That. Amen. So, you know, we and our kids see therapists every once in a while, you know, and, and they're helpful to us, and they've helped us work through a lot of these things. So, Comparatively, um, yeah, no, I mean, we're dysfunctional, but we know it. And, and there's probably dysfunctions that we're not aware of, but we're acutely aware of the fact that we are broken, dysfunctional, and man, we need Jesus. And if it's not for that, we're in trouble. But the good news is brokenness is the gateway to redemption in mm-hmm. the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And you can't get to redemption until you know and own your brokenness. And adoptive families have a, a, the beautiful value of not being able to hide from their brokenness. Yeah, I, you know, I remember, and I, I've, you know, I've 
said this other places, but um, something that our our mutual friend, you know, Russ Moore, when Russ and I were teaching together back yeah. back in the day at Southern, and and I was I was in a particularly belly aching kind of place in the in the pre adoptive process, and Russ lovingly backed me up into a corner and put his finger in my face and said, "You need to quit whining." Um, because God's going to teach you things about Himself that He that He could He could not teach you otherwise. Right. Um, had, had you not gone through this process, what what I've sensed, you know, kind of busted His chops over is He didn't tell me that that what I was really going to find out is how much I'm not like God. <laughs> you know how how much how much more sanctification needs to happen in my own life, and just you know the things that that bubble to the surface when you know when you're dealing with those obvious points of brokenness, and and so. You know, just appreciate that. Do we genuinely believe what Paul said when Paul said, I rejoice in my weakness? Mm. I I don't think we we meditate on what it means to rejoice in weakness that Mm -hmm. much. Paul genuinely, like Paul uses accounting language all over the New Testament. He's talking about the credit (laughs) column, the debit column, and the, I count this as lost to me. That's accounting language. Right. He's talking about credits and debits is what he's talking about. I really wonder how many of us genuinely meditate on Paul saying, I rejoice in my weakness? Why mm. in the world would Paul rejoice in, in, in his weakness? Because Paul understood that in the kingdom of God, it's the only place in the world where weakness is an advantage. Mm. And so you and I need to, um, and, and other adoptive families and non-adoptive families need to embrace the reality that we're weak and adoption reveals our weaknesses, both in the kids who come from broken homes and come into our homes and our own weaknesses that are exacerbated right. by brokenness as it walks into our home. Right. And and not be scared of it. Weakness is an advantage in the kingdom of God. Don't wow. try and don't try and inhibit or diminish our weakness. Man, preach it. That's uh that's something that Yeah, no, but I'm but I'm telling you like that's something that in in that um you know in that preach the gospel to yourself every day. I mean, I think that's one of those one of those implications and aspects of the gospel that as that as adoptive families we need to hear a lot. Yeah, um right. and you know and be reminded of. Don't be scared and try to hide your brokenness in front of everybody. Let's let's have a different value system in the church. I mean, we don't want to just constantly hang our dirty laundry out there. But when someone says, how are you doing? It's okay to say, you know, I mean, we're making it. It's okay to say we're struggling. We've got dysfunction in our family. But Jesus is good to us. Yeah. You understand, people who aren't broken don't need grace. We can't sing. Understand, amazing grace is precipitated by amazing brokenness. Wow. Good. Grace is not amazing unless we're deeply broken. So, so good. Let's not sing amazing grace and pretend that we've got it all together. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. And I, I think, you know, and a word that I think a lot of us, a lot of us need to be reminded of. So, man, let's turn, turn the, the corner just for just a second. And, and just curious in, in the journey as, as a pastor who's trying to, um, you know, elevate the, the, the idea of ministry to orphan and vulnerable children in, in your church, um, like what have you what have you found helpful? What's what's been you know obviously every family is not going to take the road that your family has and adopt, um, right? Nor should they. Um, but James one twenty seven is written to us all, right? So where like how, like how how have you been able to find you know success in that? Yeah, so we're, okay, let's just say we're just trying to figure this out, Rick. So (laughs) how have we found success? I'm not sure we have. Um, We're trying to figure it out. I'll tell you what we're doing and some things that we have learned and Mm. are learning. We call our orphan care ministry Orphan No More at Brainerd. It's a tagline that we used during our adoption. And kind of, it's really clear because it states right up front our purpose for our orphan ministry. We want an orphan-free world. We want a world where nobody has to go without a mom and a dad to tuck them into bed at night. 
And um, so a few things that we've learned. Number one, help Don Whitney, you know, from Southern mm-hmm. Seminary, when he was at Midwestern Seminary, when I was a student there, he was my professor there, but he was also my pastor uh, when I was 17 years old, 18 years old. I used to go to a house <laughs> church that met in him and his and Jim Ellis' home. So I've known him for a long, long time. Dr. Whitney says all reformation begins with teaching. And mm-hmm. what he means by any sort of change begins with teaching. So I would say, number one, is it a value that's being embraced from the platform that we care for those who are uh, who are a- unable to care for themselves? Yeah. And that's the weak, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. That includes orphans. It includes widows. But it includes more than that. It includes the refugee and the sojourner. And I mean the, po- the impoverished and, and all of those. So do we generally have a value that we care for the poor and, and the marginalized, those who can't help themselves? Uh, and then is that narrow? Is that more narrowly focused on specifically the words of James, the orphan and the widow? Uh, so I'd say that's part of it. Secondly, I would say be very clear and specific about what you're trying to accomplish. No church's orphan care ministry can solve the global orphan crisis. Right. So what do you do in particular at your church? And it's okay to just do that and say no to other things, mm-hmm. right? So at our church, um, we're a decent-sized church, and so we've tr- we try to do three things with our orphan care ministry. We try and provide grants to adoptive families in our church. Um, that's pretty typical, right? Yep, that's right. an unusual thing. So we try and raise money every year, create a pool of money, and then we try and provide grants so the parents in our family who want to adopt church children are not prohibitively challenged from doing so because of economics. Uh, the second thing we do is we try and provide support to foster care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just met with, uh, we're in ten, we're, our church is in Tennessee. The Tennessee Baptist Children's Home is a mile from our, their campus is a mile from our church. So I met with the local executive director of the TBCH uh, last week, and I said, how can we support you guys in foster care? Mm-hmm. And he said, we need 15 more adoptive, or 15 more foster care families, 15 more families trained in, in foster care, and then we need some people to support them. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to provide both of those. Yep. So we're trying to recruit uh, foster families in our church, and we've recruited some, and we're recruiting more. And then we're recruiting families to do everything from, like, for instance, give foster families 48 hours without the foster care kids. The cool thing about that is in the state of Tennessee, you don't have to be necessarily trained to do that. It's it's up to the foster parents to say, this is a family that we trust and we're going to let them watch our kids for 48 hours. Yep. We've got tons of families in our churches. We were just meeting with our liaison from our staff who leads our, our orphan care ministry last week. I said, this is the gateway drug to orphan care in our church. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, we can recruit families all day long that'll take kids for 48 hours in their home. And I call it the gateway drug because it's the way we ease them into foster care and adoption. Right. right? Like, Maybe they're scared of it. Let's put a kid in their home for 48 hours and show them this is not scary. And you can literally revolutionize a child's life if you would just be willing to invest in this. Um, Life groups that come alongside foster families and help provide meals, help mow lawns, that sort of thing. We're we're working on plans, you know, trying to develop those sort of things as well. So we do grants for adoptive families. We do foster care. And then globally, we want to also, if you think of an orphan crisis, as a big bucket with a spigot on top and a spigot on the bottom. Right. We want to shut off the spigot. On, I'm sorry. We want to open wide the spigot on the bottom, get all the kids into adoptive homes, and we want to turn off the spigot on top. So kids coming into the orphan system, we want to help alleviate the issues that keep them from becoming orphans. Right. So we have three locations globally where we're partnering, and we have a pretty strong global missions partnership at our church. We have three locations that we've identified where we're helping invest in small business development in those mm-hmm. areas to provide single moms or poor moms an opportunity to make a sustainable income, sustainable living, so that they don't have to send their kids away and they can afford to keep their children in their homes. Now, we're not saving hundreds or thousands of kids through that, but we're saving, we're helping keep homes for some. Yep. So those are the three things we're trying to do in our church. How do we help keep kids from becoming orphans globally? 
how do we help foster, pardon the pun, foster and develop a foster care environment in our church? And how do we help financially support parents who want to adopt kids, um, but maybe economically are challenged to do so? There's more we could do, but it would stretch our resources so thin that we wouldn't be able to do anything of impact. So those are the, the three things we would we do. My point in all that is be a, be a rifle, don't be a shotgun yep. at your church. Focus on what you do. Do it really well. Don't try and be all things to all people. So those would be a few things that we're learning at our church. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, just as, as we've continued to talk about the way that, you know, the way that the Lord's moving at Brainerd, the the, the idea of of driving people deep, and that's not just driving people deep in theology, but it's 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 driving them deep in in you know, in the practicals in life, um, and, and giving those, you know, giving those opportunities, um, is, is fantastic. And, and I think, you know, I'm sure you can begin to see that part of, part of where the culture changes in the church is that a a lot of people begin to discover over time that they are living responsive to James 127. They do really have the, 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 the father's heart for orphan and vulnerable children. Um, by by doing things like being great Bible study teachers that teach kids that are coming from hard places and supporting right. families and coming alongside and you know doing the wraparound services things thing that you talk about and and that all of those are necessary and vital pieces um, we couldn't do this if it weren't you know for people and you know working in all those ways. Yeah, not everybody should adopt, not everybody should foster, but everybody should be involved in orphan care. We can say that. We just have to recognize that there's so many different handles and levels of investment in orphan care. And so let's let's have a church where every single person in the church is involved in orphan care, not a church where everybody is adopting or fostering. Yeah. I think before we before we close today, I, I do want to uh, just very quickly ask you about, I know you have a new book coming out in, in November, um, and and really I'm excited personally about um, this book and the direction, and with so many of our families that have a heart for the nations and have a heart for the gospel and want to, you know, want to understand better um, how to live on mission in the place that God has has placed them, um, the conversation with, uh, with folks in our communities that that um, you know that follow Allah and and our our you know and and our reach into the Islamic world with the gospel. Um, you've uh, you've written a book that is about um, not about um, Muslims over there, but it's it's about the the folks that are next door and the people that are part of our community. And I'd love for you to just quickly talk about um, you know kind of what the objective of the book is and and the resource that you're providing. Yeah, so the book is called um, the, it's called Islam in North America, and um, I'm so excited about it. As far as we know, it is the first. Um, uh, it'll be the first broadly published missiology for how to help love and engage your North American Muslim neighbor. There's lots of books on there about what is Islam out there on what is Islam and how do we engage Muslims and that sort of thing. This is specific to what does Islam look like in North America. How do we love and engage our Muslim neighbors? So let me, if I can say this and you understand, you'll understand, Rick. Hopefully all the listeners will understand what I'm saying. The book takes a an anti-Muslim, uh, anti-Islam, pro-Muslim stance, yeah. if I can say that. So we are followers of Jesus. We don't believe that Islam is true. In fact, we believe it, it pulls people away from Jesus. And, 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 and as a result of that, um, it's deeply troublesome, deeply problematic. We have an issue with the theology. 
but we're pro-Muslim. In other words, the people who follow Islam, we're for them. We mm. love them, believe they're created in the image of God and desire them to, first of all, be loved by those of us who are followers of Christ, and second of all, uh, to know the hope that we have in Jesus. And so we're trying to lead a church full of people who are pro-Muslim at our at Brainerd, and by that, I, again, I don't mean um, their theology or their uh, worldview, but we're for them as people, and we love them even when we disagree with them. Um, and so uh, we're, we've written this book. I've co-edited it with my good friend Keith Whitfield, who is the Dean yeah. of Graduate Studies and the Vice President at Southeastern Seminary. He and I each contributed a chapter. The rest of the chapters are contributed by various people. Ed Stetzer has written a chapter in there, Bob Roberts, Afshin Ziafat. About 40% of the authors are non-Anglo former Muslims. Mm. And so these folks come from, a, this is not um, a white guy sitting there telling, you know, who's never been a Muslim telling everybody, here's what you ought to think and say, which a lot of unfortunately evangelical books in the U.S. <laughs> and uh, so this is, these are folks who are living it, breathing it, practicing it. Um, I've lived in the Muslim world. Uh, I've spent a tremendous amount of time in the Middle East and Southeast Asia and in Africa in the Muslim world. Um, so I, I genuinely think this is a readable book. People are going to enjoy it. It's compelling. But the forward to the book is a chapter by a guy who, um, his name's Kambiz. Uh, he's from Iran who came to Christ. He was an angry militant Muslim who came to Christ and he tells his story in the beginning of the book. It'll blow you away. It's compelling. It, it'll grip you from the beginning to the end and, uh, and suck you in and, and you'll enjoy reading it. Now here's the thing. The book will equip you academically, intellectually. It's going to tell you um, here's the state of Islam in America. Do Islam, do, do Muslims want to take over with Sharia law, the government? How do we approach that? How do we understand it? My chapter is on the future of Islam in North America. I just look at demographic trends over the past 30 years and try and project out what we think is going to be true of Islam. And then there's some real practical. How do I engage my my next door neighbor who's from Iraq or he's from Turkey or he's from Iran or, or you know um, the Sudan? How do I engage them? with the gospel? How do I love them? What are the questions we ask? What are the questions they're going to ask of me? How do I prepare for it? It's a primer that you can put in the hands of people in your church on how to be evangelistic and on mission, how to love their neighbors who are Muslims who live here in North America. And so it does come out November 1st from BNH Academic. I think it's going to be a really helpful book. You can pre-order it already on Amazon. I hope folks will pick it up because I think it's going to be a help to the church. Fantastic. That's Islam in North America. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll put the Amazon link in show notes so that uh, folks can know where to go and find it and uh, and pre-order it. So, man, thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been fun to talk with you. And uh, and as always, we appreciate the the friendship and the partnership and the gospel that that we have with you and, and with Brainerd. It's been fast and furious, but fun, man. We're thankful for you guys. Love what you guys do for, uh, for orphans around the world. Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.